Hi, you are listening to Mobile Couch, and this is a show where we talk about mobile development for mobiles. And this show is hosted by Jake McMullen. Good evening. And Ben Trengrove. Hello. And myself, Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly. And this is episode number 63. And it's supported by our super amazing patrons who are amazing. Super amazing. Very super amazing. And we have follow-up. On the last episode, we talked about frameworks and... Dependencies and package managers and things. Yeah. So, first of all, we got some feedback on like a tiny item that was in the middle of one of those things uh, from Giovanni Lodi. I think that's how you pronounce that surname on Twitter, who wanted to tell me that the pod spec is written in Ruby DSL. All right. Domain-specific language. Because I said that I thought it might be YAML. Yes. And it turns out that it's not YAML. What I was thinking of was the Travis CI preference file that you stick in a library if you okay. want it to be built with Travis CI, which is written in YAML. And that's why I was confused. Cool. But we also found out some other stuff about CocoaPods and Carthage that kind of a little bit, I mean, it doesn't really change the differences between them, but it kind of blurs the lines yeah. a little bit. It definitely makes them pretty much seem the same. Yeah. So my biggest complaint with Carthage was when you're working on your own, say you've got your own API client that you're writing yourself that goes with your app and you've got it in a different repo. With Carthage, it pulls it in and builds it itself and then you drag in that framework. But that means you can't, you know, open up the code and debug it and edit it and, you know, do it like really I felt was slowing me down. And it turns out, of course, they've thought of that. Yeah, because it's like using just a, you know, like a binary dependency in that mode. Yeah. You don't actually, it's as if you don't have the source when you're working on it in your app, which is painful. And you're saying, so Carthage handles that. There's a way of dealing with it differently. Yeah, you can, you can switch Carthage to use submodules. So you, it will pull down Git submodules and just manage them for you, basically. So you can edit in them. And as long as you remember to push your commits, just like any old submodule, it will work the same. So yeah, you nice. can debug and all of that. So yeah, that was kind of my biggest complaint. And it wasn't real. So now, I guess Carthage is great. <laughs> <laughs> and to use it, it's just a flag on the command line thing. Yeah. I think the flag is use submodules. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So you'd still need to integrate that submodule into your Xcode project yourself, yep. right? As in just like as is the Carthage, the Carthage way. way. Yep. yep. So you still have to integrate it. All it's really doing is breaking the big problem with submodules that if one relies, like if you've got a cross dependency somewhere, it will resolve yeah. that for you. Yeah. Mm. The other problem I've been having with Carthage since uh, using it is that I find it is not as widely supported as I'd like, which in some cases isn't an issue. So for a framework to be buildable by Carthage, as we mentioned last time, all it has to do is have a somewhere you can get the source code from. So it supports like GitHub or other Git repos. It wants tagged tags and it'll by default get the most recent tag or you can name like specify tag names. If there isn't tags, you can kind of force it to use a branch, for example, or the most recent commit. So you, that does work. But there, there are just times when, I don't know, I found a handful of frameworks I wanted to integrate using Carthage that didn't um, build if I just added it to my cart file like that. Yeah, so it feels like CocoaPods is more widely supported these days. There's still, like most places will have a pod file. It will build with CocoaPods. Yeah. Whereas with Carthage, I found a few at least where it just hasn't, and I've had to mess around to get it to build. And a lot of 
big companies are actually supporting CocoaPods these days as well. Yeah. Yeah. Google. Um, Google's are yeah, exclusively CocoaPods now. Yeah. Because they yep. don't even put um, them on Git, which is the crazy thing. So the the pod spec links off to like a zip file on their server, which is kind of gross, yeah. but that's how they did it. So you don't really have a choice but to use CocoaPods. Actually, that's a nice, I kind of thought that was a nice feature that Carthage also supports is that it can download a pre-built binary. Um, so if framework publishers have got a, a pre-built version, um, you needn't go to the overhead of having to download all the source code and compile it locally if you don't want oh, to. Yeah. Like if you just want to re- mm. use a named numbered release of a known framework, you can just go and get that binary, um, which can be a lot faster. But again, it relies on, it uses convention over configuration. So if there is a tag in the repo that has a zip with the word framework somewhere in it, uh, it will assume that that's you know, a version and use that. Um, so it's pretty easy for people to support, but again, I don't think many people do. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, CocoaPods can do the same thing. Like it can pull pre-built frameworks and all it needs is the pod spec somewhere. Mm. And given that you use um, Trunk to, you know, basically upload your pod specs and uh, basically um, add them to the CocoaPods repository, it's, you know, it's, it's used by most of the big companies that, you know, mm. they just offer you know, pre-built libraries that they don't want to yeah. you know, open up the source. So like Google, yeah. uh, another one is Fabric, the Twitter yeah. thing. You can use that as a as a CocoaPod. Yeah, Hockey. Uh, yeah, Hockey does it. CocoaPod. There's a few. Yeah, there's, there, there are lots and lots. I yeah. think the other thing I, I, that we didn't touch on, I don't think last time, was um, I still find it kind of frustrating that there isn't something in like the IDE in Xcode to deal with this. Oh, you touched I on this of, last time. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like the fact that Android Studio supports Gradle and it just like, you know, the platform vendor is saying, this is the way we're suggesting developers manage yeah. dependencies and we're going to support it in the tooling. Um, I think I mentioned Xamarin last time. Yep. Uh, it would be nice if, uh, you know, if Apple came out and said, we're going to support something, whatever it is, and make it a little bit easier, then it would be clearer what people should do anyway. I th- I'll add it to my wish list. I think CocoaPods is becoming r- a relatively clear choice for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, given that a lot of big companies are supporting it now. So like th- it, the sense I got from talking to some of the Apple engineers at, in labs at DubDub, I was yeah. kind of uh, you know, making this point to them. The sense I got was that they didn't like things that messed with the Xcode project and workspace and... Ah, well, actually, well, the, this is the other piece of this is the other piece of uh, follow up that we have is that you can actually use CocoaPods in what's called no integrate mode, where it doesn't touch your workspace like mm. or, or project at all. Uh, you you it's left to you to actually integrate it in, much like with Carthage. Yeah, awesome. Um, so in order to do that, you just use um, you just use a no integrate flag on like the install or update command line bit, and it won't. Like it won't create anything. Yeah, cool. Which means that yeah, you can use it pretty much the same way. You don't have to worry about you know touching uh, it, it touching your workspace or anything like that if you've already got one set up. That sounds nice. So you know, that this is this is why we were saying that it, like it you know blurs the lines mm. because it's uh you know it's much less clear as to what the difference is between them. Yeah. Obviously, you know the default mode is to actually do the integration, but you can use it the other way if you like and i mean if you're just running the command line 
thing or if you're just having it run through like a continuous integration server or something like that then you can just you know you can set it up quite easily because it's just a flag on the command yeah cool not 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 quite such a you know such a big deal i think as far as uh you know because it it doesn't have to mess with your project it's just for a lot of people it is easier because they don't really they don't really get it yeah, I still don't get it either. It's confusing all of these libraries and frameworks and dependencies and search paths and Yeah. I kinda like to think that I've got my head around it, but you know, I probably will run into it now that I've said that out loud. I'll probably run into a problem with it tomorrow and you know, I'll I'll feel terrible about having said it. It's all fun until it stops working and then yeah. it's just a world of pain while you try and figure out why it's not working that said x xcode has a tendency to just stop working sometimes just by itself let alone you know with other things messing with it so you know enough said (laughs) (laughs) okay so this week i was going over some old code and i was trying to come up with a solution to dealing with code that is just horribly indented like the level of indentation has just got ridiculous we're talking so you can't even see it on the screen without scrolling right. Yeah, if like you can't see the start of the 11, line. <laughs> eleven inch MacBook Air, you're never going to get to the end. I'm pretty sure that eleven inch MacBook Air only shows like one, you know, one tab at indent. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> man, what? How did they used to indent the punch cards? I want to know if you like, you know, when you had to or fix well, it was eighty column or something. That's the, I think that's where this discipline of you know those people knew how to program. Factor their code so that you didn't have to right. actually indent more than. Well, they weren't using. They were using different code as well. Mm. I think it was that was back in the procedural days. Yeah, uh, I don't know before object oriented programming. I'm not that old. I can't remember. I'm sure. Okay, so this normally occurs around like making asynchronous calls, right? So you make a call, and because the answer isn't there straight away, you provide a block, closure, callback, whatever you want to call it, and then you do something inside that callback so you need to use the data you just received to make another call and so inside your callback you write another little call which has a callback and then you now you're at level three and this can just keep on going yeah so for instance i came up with an example that was let's say we were making a github app and you wanted to get all the commit messages in a private repo that you know the user has access to. So to do that, you would need to get your access token. So you would need to log in. And then once you've got your login, you would need to call to get the repo. And then once you've got the repo details, you would need to call to get the commit messages on the specific branch. And so that's three levels deep right there. Hmm. And each one needs to use something from the last one. So there's no quick and obvious way to just refactor it out because you have to wait for each one to come back. Do you guys run into this much? All the time. Yeah, I, I probably run into it occasionally. And what's your strategy? Is there anything really you do about it? or Indent it further <laughs> has been my strategy to date, which it, it isn't very satisfactory, to be honest. I don't... I, th- I think maybe I, I factor my code in a way that I don't necessarily use blocks to indent all the time. But maybe that's just me. The, the other place I run into this is um, animation. Like UI view animate yeah. with yeah. duration yeah. completion. Yeah, that and then work. in the completion doing something else that's yeah. asynchronous. Yeah. Like even if you just do two animations in this way, um, you've got your like UI view animate 
with duration, animations, completion. And then in the completion, you do it again. And then in the completion of that, you're doing something. It's like you're suddenly... And then and then you've got to throw in some like ifs and elses and stuff like that. Yeah. Where you're also then into, in, indenting it again. And, and again. potentially unwrapping some optionals. Yeah. If you're so inclined. Yeah. Um, I don't have a good solution. If you're in Swift, one thing I've seen people doing is because functions are just closures, you can pass in a function as your callback. And that at least will take you back to you know your class level of indentation so that works yeah i've, I've yeah. done that a few times um it, i find it kind of makes it hard harder to follow because you got to jump around like at least with the indented one you can straight away see like where it's going right you just it's right in front of you i mean you got to move your head left to right and it doesn't look that pretty <laughs> but at least you can read it whereas the other yeah, one you that, go, i think i that... find myself command clicking around all over the place yeah that's a huge win for like inline closures, callbacks, whatever they are, the fact that the the thing that's ha- that's being called back is right there in line with the thing that's triggered it. But I do use that approach of um just put a, you know having a function that's sitting at the top level of my class that does something and passing that function as a callback. I guess the the place I've been using that most is um to communicate between view controllers that. Uh, in some ways related so instead of using um delegation which i'd kind of done when i was coding predominantly in objective c i'd write a protocol that my child view controller might use to communicate back to its parent so it would have yep its protocol would define all of the messages that it was expecting to be able to send Um, and then i'd make the parent adopt that protocol and register as its delegate and have you know if my delegate conforms to the protocol then call its methods Um, whereas since i've been programming predominantly in swift lately i've been doing it in a kind of lighter weight way where i just have variables that store sort of like event handlers for the different things that my child might want to communicate back to its parent and then in the parent when i'm setting up that child view controller in usually prepare for segue in the embed segue i just assign the functions that i want to call in the parent to the various event handler things in the child yeah that way works really well i find for um like small you know when you've only got an on success or on error and that's it yeah exactly yeah if you've got heaps i still find protocols better especially the other thing about protocols though is it forces like if you have a delegate and your protocol it forces you to implement those methods whereas if you just yeah. use event handlers that that's like having an optional delegate or optional delegate methods where they might be unimplemented yeah so yeah those are like the the ways to deal with it i guess natively using only things supported in the language without bringing in any third-party dependencies. But there actually are a couple of libraries that are getting pretty used these days to try and deal with this problem of callback hell. Uh, And I took a look at some of them this week to sort of evaluate, I guess. And the first one I came across, because it was talked about so much, was PromiseKit. Have you guys heard of PromiseKit? I don't believe I have. I, I haven't. I've heard of the concept of promises kind of from JavaScript, yeah. but I've never really understood them. So anticipating that, I actually went and copied down the definition of a future and promise. Apparently those words can pretty much be used interchangeably. There's a like very subtle difference, but it doesn't really matter. So anyway, a promise describes an object that acts as a proxy for a result that is initially unknown usually because the computation of its value is yet incomplete. So it's kind of like providing a proxy object that once the value is there, will fill it in. So you, you pass back this object that doesn't quite have it in it yet. It's kind of like an optional, 
But once the result is there, it becomes that result. So it also sounds to me like a core data fault. Yeah. Is that a reasonable It does sound like of... a lot like a fault. I think it's slightly different. So a fault is triggered by hitting it and then it's not there, right? And so then it goes and retrieves it. And that's yeah. generally synchronous, correct? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. As far as I'm aware, it is. Yeah. Let's go with that. It is for now. If it's wrong, I'm yeah. sure we'll hear about it. I'm sure <laughs> somebody will tell us. Anyway, so a promise is mainly used more for asynchronous calls. So you can't just call it and then the result will just magically appear. You have to come back to it. But what it provides is it provides a way to keep all your indentation at the same level. So you can basically go login user dot then pass a callback in for once you've got it, do this, and it will have the information there. And so now your code is flowing more in a line because after each one, you can just write then, then, and then at the end, you can put a finally if you want. Um, so your code flows in a line. And PromiseKit basically provides a whole pile of extensions. Their goal is to provide one for every single asynchronous call in Cocoa. Wow. So you get them for NSURL connection, location manager, core animation, like you said. You could do uh, move to here, dot, then move down, dot, then scale up. Like So you get that nice inner line rather than all indenting style of thing yeah that sounds awesome and the docs as well like they provide the best documentation of probably i would say any library i've used so far that really guides you through step by step what to do and they show you common misuses which which really helped me because at first when you start doing it you're finding that you are still indenting and you're like hey what i thought the point of this was that it kept it all at the same level and they show you like why you did that and how you went wrong and this is how you should have written it so that was really cool it does sound cool. I'm I'm a bit confused though, because it sounds like it's then becoming synchronous, right? So if you're calling do something dot then do something else, it sounds yeah. like the um the thing that you're calling dot then on is like a synchronous call on like it, it it's hiding yeah. the asynchronicity. Is that right? How does it so work? The thing to remember is that first one is still going to return straight away, just like just like you're used to. So when you write data task with session or whatever the nsurl session is that returns instantly and your function will drop out of scope and all of that so that yeah. stuff still happens and you need to be aware of that but what happens is it comes back to those callbacks just like it normally would when the async task has finished as long as it's still in scope yeah cool hmm. so how have you found using it does it do, do you end up needing to know how it's working internally and does it like it kind of worries me adopting something like this that i don't fully understand the internals of i guess this goes back to when i was thinking about adopting arc or not adopting arc it's like it sounds yeah. it feels magic and it's good to use straight away until it it is doing something that i'm not fully understanding and it has some side effect that i didn't know that i had to be aware of but it turns out i do have to be aware of and then i'm in trouble so the cool thing about obviously it's open source so if you're wondering how it does the location manager turns their delegates into callbacks you can just click it and have a read and it's actually not very complex uh the thing that yeah, cool. i found really helped was that i was trying to put it in my own api and so i was going through having to implement the promise like returning a promise rather than just returning or just calling the callback and then not returning anything if you know what i mean so you got to mm. return this yep. promise mm. proxy object and doing that like really helped my understanding because i could see exactly what it was doing yeah awesome with with that, do you think that um, as if you were writing an API that you were going to let other people use, do you think adding Promise Kit to it or using Promises 
would be a good design decision, thereby sort of requiring clients of that API to use it as well? Or would you offer it as an option? Just like all, I think, frameworks that I use, I like the option of being able to do the async stuff myself. So I I prefer methods where Mm. if I want, I can call them synchronously. Even though I know (laughs) if I do that on the main thread, it's a very bad idea, but I like to be able to manage that. And then I also like to have the option, and it has to be an option, this is what I like, of being able to do things like promise kit or async calls. Or So I, I think it should be provided as an extension. So you don't actually have to import promise kit to use your fancy framework you've made. You can just take the base yeah. version if you want. Yeah. And if you like yeah. the it's idea just... of promises, go ahead. Use, use yeah. the promise kit extension. Yeah, that makes sense. It's the sort of thing where you, you don't really want to be like requiring a dependency if you don't have to. Yeah. yeah. And something like yeah. Promise Kit is not a necessity, it's a nice thing. Yeah. If you're building something on top of say for instance AF networking because it makes your I mean probably shouldn't at this point but if you're building a library that uses AF networking to do some other fancy thing, let's say you're making a library that fetches an image and puts it onto a into an image view uh, and that's your library. Uh, and you require AF networking, that's somewhat understandable. I mean, that makes a little bit of sense. But if you're requiring something that just is a kind of a syntax, you know, syntactic sugar, mm. I, yeah, I don't, I'm not I'm not a fan of that. And I personally will avoid any libraries that actually require that sort of stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, th- I think it makes sense having it as an option. Yeah. Um. One more thing about PromiseKit, though. If you're using it with Swift, you get type safety as well. So when you use it with Objective-C, your promises come back as like, you know, NS objects that you have to cast down to what you know they are. Um, but if you're using Swift, your promises are actually strongly typed. So like say using our um, commit messages example again, your promise would come back with an array of strings. Or if you had an actual model class for commit message, but wait. it would come back as that. But wait, Objective-C has that now. It does. Okay, so I don't think PromiseKit has been updated for that yet. Damn PromiseKit. And they're also currently redoing it for Swift 2, I noticed, because I was using it in Swift 2. Because um, some of the keywords they were using in previous versions got adopted by Swift 2. Oh, right. And so they've had to rename them. It's interesting. I've been using Swift 2 lately as well and have found that some frameworks have already got a Swift 2 branch, um, which is great, and some don't. I ended up forking something and I yeah did a pull request to add Swift 2 support back to the framework because I need I wanted to use it. And the automatic migration thing is pretty good. You can usually just get it going. Uh, it's kind of interesting to see how quickly people are adopting Swift 2. Yeah. I mean, so PromiseKit does have a Swift 2 branch. They just claim uh, some of the method names might change. They haven't settled on what they've renamed things to yet. Yeah. But they have actually, one thing, they've adopted the whole new throws error handling in Swift 2, which is pretty cool. So they're right on right, top so of that. How does it handle errors in like, because basically what you end up doing is chaining a bunch of calls together, any one of which could fail. Yeah. How how does it handle that situation? Like, if there's an error part of the way through in step two of three or something, what do, what happens? Yeah. Okay. So uh, in Swift two, so I used it in Swift two, so that's the one I'm more familiar with. But I know it works very similar in the older version. Um, each of those promise closures that you pass in are actually of the type that throws. Um, so any one of them can throw. So inside any of your callbacks, you can throw an error if you want. And then right at the end, so after all your thens, you can provide another one for on error. And that's where you handle. And you get your nice error type from your enum in the normal Swift 2 style. And you can 
do a switch on it and work out what went wrong and handle it however you please. So yeah, it handles that fine. That's kind of nice because it allows you to sort of coalesce all of your potential errors into one block of code. Yeah. And in the sort of situation that you're describing, you kind of like you're calling three or four different like asynchronous calls, but really you're doing one logical unit of work, which is log in and get the list of commit messages and kind of dealing with, you know, you mightn't really want to expose to the calling code exactly where the error happened. Just it either succeeded and here's your result or it didn't and yeah, it was an error. that's right. Uh, the other thing which I guess using PromiseKit uh, provides is suddenly your variables don't all share scope, which is really nice. So if you do the old way of just writing each new call inside the callback of the other one, every variable in that chain can be accessed by the lower callbacks, right? They, it would yeah. capture all of them. Whereas with PromiseKit, they all sit at the same level of scope. So each callback only has what's passed into it. So it kind of like gives you a nice locked down world. Yeah, right. So you can still pass through the stuff you do want to become in scope of the yep. subsequent calls, but they don't immediately get everything else, capture everything else. That's right. Sounds good. Yeah, it, it is good. I encourage everyone to check it out. Uh, they have great docs, as I've already said. So just promisekit.org and you can go through a quick read me about what they're all about. Okay, so the next one I came across, which is, I know, relatively commonly used, was obviously Reactive Cocoa. Have you guys played with Reactive Cocoa at all yet? No. Only a tiny bit. So I, I like, oh, ages ago, before we previously talked about it even, I um, went through one of the tutorials about how you could use it to sort of validate the state of various UI elements. Like if you, you know, enter a password and confirm the password and if they're both right, then you enable a button, that sort of thing. Yeah. Of having, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I haven't used it in the way. So I, I realized that it could be used for exactly the problem you're describing because I think when we had um, Basil on the show yeah, talking about B, which is his... Yes. um. Mac app for interacting with GitHub and things like that. He mentioned this problem of having to, you know, chain together lots and lots of network calls and mentioned that Reactive Cocoa was a good option for it. It's definitely the sort of thing that you run into when you're using a third party API. Yeah. Probably more so than anything. And especially if that API requires you to do some sort of, you know, login dance mm. where you have to get like a token or something to use. And often I, the APIs I've encountered. Like, I don't know if this is an API design philosophy or I don't know what, but I've encountered quite a few APIs where it seems to be a very thin, restful kind of wrapper around the data model yeah. that the API is allowing you to access. So instead of making kind of endpoints that um, group together logic and data or whatever, they just basically say, here's the endpoints for dealing with this entity. Here's the endpoints for dealing with this entity here's the endpoints for dealing with this one. And if you're doing a little bit of logic that touches on multiple entities, you end up having to call multiple endpoints to kind of yeah. get all the bits you need and assemble Right, them. Seems to be a pretty common thing. Okay, well, I'm definitely not going to give a huge intro into how Rack works and Reactive Cocoa being Rack and everything about that because that topic is massive. Damn, I was kind of hoping you would because I, <laughs> I, I still want to know more about it. 
I only know the basics. We've covered it before in older episodes, and I don't think we've ever really gotten our heads around it. Because we also had a conversation with Ash Furrow about like uh, reactive programming, which is part of what React Reactive Cocoa is, right? Yeah, yeah. Like that's it's Reactive Cocoa is essentially an attempt to bring reactive programming to Cocoa to, uh, to Cocoa. Yeah, yeah. And even after like that conversation and the several conversations that we've had, and and I read Ash's book, Functional Reactive Programming, and I still, I, I'm still like, I have a very limited knowledge of how how it actually all kind of fits together. Okay, so well, from what I understand, the basics of it is that Rack basically puts everything into what's known as a stream. So your asynchronous data, you subscribe to the stream. It's almost as if you put like you were standing next to the river and you're watching things floating by and you can pick one up if you want to, right? It's like things come down the stream and you can take them or you can take yes. every second one or whatever you want to do. Is this a similar concept to signals in Rack? Is it the same thing? We're same just thing. using a different metaphor for it. Like exactly You're the listening same. and signals arrive on the communications stream that you're listening to. Is yeah, it, we're crossing our metaphors. Is it like when we go to Sushi Boat and the boats go around on the little moat water. And thing. you can just take the food and you off. Take it? the sushi from the yeah, boat. Yeah, we'll see. At sushi you know, boat. Some people only like salmon, so they filter and will only ever accept salmon. <laughs> this is getting so abstract. But <laughs> I, I just I just choose by the color of the plates. Anyway, so that's that's really derailing you or de streaming you. Yeah. Who knows? That's... Hang on, there are plates on the boats? See, I've yeah. never been to Sushi Boat. I just thought you'd take the boat instead of no, the plate. No, no, you take like the, the boat. So was the, boat the, plate? Has, the boat has like a, a couple of plates yeah. on it. Oh, And you right. take a plate from the boat. Here's me thinking you get to have the whole boat no, taken the boat, out of the water. The boats are that. huge. Like, the boats are like big, like big wooden things, and they're chained together, so you couldn't okay. actually pull them out. Oh, I'm kind of disappointed. You, you wouldn't like it anyway. You don't like, you don't like fish. I'd have to wait a long time. Until the sushi I wanted would come past. <laughs> Which is none of the sushi? Don't they do some with chicken? Maybe. I don't think it, that place did. Not at Sushi Boat. Sorry, Rack. <laughs> rack. Okay. So, without going over the whole problem that we already covered in Promise Kit, basically, instead of using promises, you wrap everything to return observables. Pretty much the same thing, to be honest. And with observables, you can do whatever you want to them. You can combine multiple observables together to, say, wait for the last value or just take whatever comes first. Whatever comes first, I don't care. I'll take that one. And so using those kind of techniques, you can make your multiple API calls, flat map them all together, and then each one, and it, to be honest, it almost looks exactly the same as promises when you type it out. You get one callback after another in a row, each one flat mapped together and suddenly you're just passing just the relevant information into each one, and then it all comes out the bottom, and you get your error handling exactly the same as Promise Kit. So at the last one, you've got your on-error stream, and that's pretty much it, to be honest. There's heaps of GitHub projects out there that wrap things that you would want to do. Kind of like Promise Kit does them all. You, with Reactive Cocoa, you have to go and find one that does the bit that you want. So there's one for AF networking, for instance, and there's one for NSURL connection, and there's one for core animation, and... Pull in the ones you need or write your own. There's lots of tutorials on how to wrap your APIs to return observables instead. And that's, yeah, that's it. And Reactive Cocoa, though, is is a larger, it, it's a different, it, like it's more than just the, uh, like the, this kind of, you know, dealing with blocks and stuff, though, isn't it? It's It's got more to it than that. Yeah. 
the way I look at it is I probably wouldn't import reactive cocoa if this was the only thing you were trying to solve. If you're just trying yeah. to do a couple of network calls one after another, importing all of reactive cocoa just to solve that problem is probably a bit extreme. But uh, if you've already got it in your project, like you're using it everywhere, this definitely makes sense to do it here as well. And it sounds like um, reactive cocoa also supports a different use case that, that's similar, where instead of having a series of calls you want to make one after the other, you might have multiple ones in flight and yeah. you want to wait for them all to finish before yeah, you, you proceed. Yeah, you want one but, call back. Yeah, exactly. You might make like five concurrent calls and you can't proceed until you've got all five or three of the five or something, um, but you don't yeah. necessarily care what order they happen in, um, which um, I think we may have previously talked about using dispatch groups for. Yeah. Yeah. So Rack lets you do both the do call one followed by call two followed by call three and do three calls and whenever they've finished, proceed to this other thing. Yeah, I mean, you can do. That's the cool thing about Rack. Like, you can do anything, really. Like, you might want to proceed after the second one whichever one it is returns you could do yeah. that yeah. Um, and to be honest promise kit lets you do like at the same time calls as well so you could fire off All three right. at the same time and do a dot then i think you use join i didn't actually do it but i remember reading it in the docs they've got like a join method to join a whole pile of promises together and then you just write dot then it's the same thing and then you sort of have one promise that represents all of them yeah that sounds kind of cool is there something like dispatch groups is built into um is it GCD? It sounds like it should be. Grand Central Dispatch? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. Is there something built into GCD for doing kind of promise-style things? Not that I know of. I would love to hear about it. Grand Central Dispatch is, I mean, it's kind of good. Like, it's good, but it's kind of a bit of a pain to work with at times. Right. It, do, it yeah. doesn't have a convenient... Yeah, it's not... I mean, there's not a nice lot of convenience API. to it. Yeah. Um, and... It's kind of just a very simplistic version of what you would need, you know, the the lowest common denominator, I guess, mm. if you will. Whereas I mean, these other kind of frameworks, I guess, probably are built on top of it. I would, I would, I would assume. I don't know, Ben. You probably have more idea about that than I do. Oh, definitely. Yeah. If they fire off a thread, they would use Grand Central Dispatch. And yeah. I mean, they're just calling APIs that are doing that themselves underneath. Really. Yeah. yeah. So they're kind yeah. of. Yeah. Two levels above, I guess. Um, but yeah, of course. So because yeah, there's I mean, there's also NS Thread and stuff, which is also then I believe built on top of Grand Central Dispatch. Hmm. So it's just like Grand Central Dispatch is just like the lowest form of all that sort of stuff. It's got a yeah. cool name as well. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of cool. It makes me think of trains. Yeah. Um. So Ben, which would you recommend, and and would you recommend? Like, uh, are you going to start using one of these? in your code and why okay so if i was on ios probably at the moment promise kit um one more we haven't mentioned is i've noticed people recently talking about rx swift which is a direct port of rx the original which is like microsoft's one right um, yeah. because is it microsoft's is it was it a first party or was it just a something that emerged in the sort of c sharp developer community i i thought it came from microsoft's like research department I could be wrong okay. on that. But it, it was kind of one of the first popular reactive programming libraries. Yeah. And so Reactive Cocoa was kind of originally inspired by that, bringing those techniques over. But since then, the API yeah. has massively diverged. Like you, you can't really read an RX textbook and then go and use Reactive Cocoa. You'd just be lost. Yeah. yeah. Whereas you could 
read the Rx textbook and then go and use Rx Swift. Or what I was about to bring in was Rx Java and Rx Android. So on Android, I use Rx Android. And you do the same thing by flat mapping observables together. Oh, nice. Um, so in terms of doing cross-platform development, is is there some appeal at using Rx Swift and having a conceptually similar approach across Yeah, platforms? I think so. It's lighter weight and it has sort of less, I guess, hidden magic. Like a lot of reactive Cocoa stuff is kind of like, whoa, how the hell did that happen? Whereas I find yeah. Rx, because it doesn't have as much in it, less of that happens. Although I've still, I'm still getting my head around this whole reactive thing. Um, I just use like the very top layer. <laughs> There's like heaps underneath. Well, promises and like the idea of like all that sort of uh, attaching, like getting signals back and reacting to like to stuff is kind of the very, it's kind of the easiest part of reactive programming. Yeah. Like to, to actually grasp, right? It's, I mean, I mean, obviously it's in the name, but there's, there's, there is more to it, which is, I think, where I get lost with reactive programming. Like, I get lost because I don't understand, like, how it can be more than just, re- like, reacting to things. But, uh, yeah. I, I think that's where I get lost, too, is um, how to start thinking about decomposing problems into small units of things that emit signals or receive signals in order to, you know do something com- more complex. I, I think I've yeah. kind of grown up too much thinking in object-oriented terms. I, I've kind of am now feeling comfortable with you think, describe a problem and I can kind of think of OO concepts of breaking it down into small bits and a class could be responsible for this and another class could be responsible for that and seeing how they could cooperate to, to do something. But I, I have yet to figure out how to say, okay, well, I can break this problem down into a series of functions that communicate via signals and Mm. But this this sounds like a nice area for for dipping a toe in the waters of being yeah. able to sort of say, you know, this bit of chaining together asynchronous calls. Yeah, I would agree. So that's pretty much all I have to say on solving that problem. Hopefully it wasn't too... It's kind of hard to get these concepts across just by listening to a podcast, I think. I think you've got to go and read the docs and see the examples to really see how it works. Well, since you mention it, you can actually, we'll actually put links. I think there's going to be a lot of links today, actually. <laughs> like, I know there was a handful already, but then we've added a whole bunch of new things that I'm going to have to uh, get uh, put the links in for. And they'll all be in our show notes, which are on our website. And you can find them at mobilecouch.co forward slash 63, because that's today's episode. And uh, if you'd like to, you know, tell us why, we, like, what you prefer, or if you, uh, why you use Reactive Cocoa, or why you use Promise Kit, or why you use any of the other ones, or you know, want to try and you know explain it to poor Jake and I, who are absolutely confused by the concept, uh, you can send us an email. Our address is hello at mobilecouch.co, or you can jump on the website, which is mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. Now, if you'd like to contact us individually, we're on Twitter, which is, you know, good for short things as opposed to long things because it's Twitter, I guess. You could chain a whole heap of tweets together. <laughs> see, you could. See what I did there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what, happens, what happens if you respond before the final tweet is sent to you? I, pr- I promise I won't. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, I see what me, you did stop there. Stop me now. Jake is on Twitter with 
these jokes and many more. I'm just not getting the sort of reactions I was expecting. Oh, God. <laughs> Jay McMullen, that's J-M-A-C-M-U-L-L-I-N. Ben is on Twitter as well. Ben Trengrove, that's B-E-N-T-R-E-N-G-R-O-V-E, and I am Jelly Bean Soup. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been amazing. Thank you to our Patreon patrons for supporting the show. You are absolutely outstanding, and we thank you very much. We look forward to talking to you in two more weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Bye. See ya.